Open to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. We continue to move through the book of 1 Corinthians. We're, we're returning after a bit of a break through the Holy Week uh, activities and messages that came forth. It was a beautiful, incredible uh, time during Holy Week. We, uh, the uh, services that we did, the Passover Seder with the two rabbis, Rabbi Rene and Robert, if you were here for that, the Tenebrae services on Good Friday, Resurrection Sunday morning, uh, just amazing to see how the Lord moved in people's hearts and lives, how people were touched, and uh, we're just encouraged about what God is doing. Hopefully you had a chance to pray with some people during the National Day of Prayer. There were events happening all over the country, and that's very powerful to see uh, people all over the country praying. There were a couple of major events that I was part of, and uh, just encouraged to see God's people crying out to him. That's really what we need. We need him to move in our lives and our country. So we're glad you're here. We're going to return to 1 Corinthians, and we are doing a message called The Cup of Blessing. The Cup of Blessing. Let's read the text together. 1 Corinthians 10. We're going to pick it up in verse 14. We're going to read through verse 22. 1 Corinthians 10, beginning in verse 14. I'm reading from the New American Standard. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to wise men, you judge what I say. Is not the cup of blessing, 1016, which we bless a sharing in the blood of Christ? Is not the bread which we break sharing in the body of Christ? Since there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Look at the nation of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices sharers in the altar? What do I mean then? That a thing sacrificed to idols is anything, or that an idol is anything? No. But I say that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. And I do not want you to become sharers in demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Or do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? We are not stronger than he, are we? Would you pray with me? Father, as uh, we get back into the book of 1 Corinthians, we're grateful for the content. We're grateful for the challenges that the book brings. Chapters 8 through 10 are really about idolatry, which is the biggest problem we face, whether we know it or not. It's other false gods infringing, distracting taking residence in our hearts, causing us often to lead a double life, to show fidelity to you one moment and then to something potentially demonic the next. And Lord, that is how the enemy works, and we know that there are some things that in our world are just simply neutral, they're not a big deal, but there are other things that really you've told us not to mess with, you've told us don't go there. Because idols are nothing, but demonic activity does happen around these things. And there's potential to fall and fall hard. Thank you that in every situation that we face, every temptation to go the way of the idol, you provide a way of escape that we may be able to endure it. Our heart is to take the way of escape every time. But the reality, Lord, is that often we don't. We need all the help we can get. And so we come before you with hungry hearts 
to hear what you have to say to us this morning, to be good soil for the seed of the word of God. So we just pray that you would move, that you would touch our hearts. You don't want us to be given over to the idol because it really matters how we worship, what we do, and you love us. That's really why you don't want us to go that way. So I pray that you would bless your people, and I pray that you would open our eyes to see what you have for us today. May we respond in a way that pleases you. In Jesus' name I pray, and all God's people said, amen. amen. Now, when we ended the last section, we looked at a verse that some of you have memorized over your Christian journey. That's verse 13 of chapter 10. It says, no temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. God is faithful, even when we are not. He, or who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation, or you could say with each and every temptation, God will provide the way of escape also so that you may be able to endure it. Now, if you have never memorized that verse before, can I encourage you to work on memorizing that verse and to use the verse when you are feeling tempted? And here's some things that you need to know. First of all, every time you're tempted, it's common to everybody. We all go through similar temptations in similar areas. Now, it could be nuanced differently for each one of us, but the point is, is that it's common. We're all facing the same battles. We're all struggling with our flesh, the world, the devil, the same intoxicating things that were dangling carrots in the Garden of Eden are the same things repackaged in modern life. And now they're a bit easier to access with modern technology, and there are many people who are uh, inside and outside the church who are falling really on a daily basis to temptation. And it's a hard thing when you get into a habitual sin pattern as a Christian and you know it's wrong and each time you fall to that thing, you can feel a whole flood of different emotions, including you can feel condemned, you can feel beat up, and all of that. Now, there's no condemnation for those of us who are in Christ Jesus. But if you are in that sin pattern, that habitual sin pattern, you find that your life is really tied up in falling to that thing and then trying to clean up the mess, and then start over again, and you're really not free to be all that God wants you to be. He loves you. He wants you to be free not to sin. If the Son makes you free, you will be free indeed. But let's face it, that freedom kind of moves as we mature, right? We become more free, hopefully, as we are maturing in Christ. So everything that you face is common to every one of us. God is faithful. That's what you need to know. He will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. So each and every temptation that comes your way, he will not allow you to, to be overwhelmed by it. And you say, well, Pastor Michael, then what does he do in those moments? Because I do feel overwhelmed. In each and every temptation, he provides the way of escape. And the way, there is not a way, it's the way. And it makes us think of Jesus when he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And here, the way is always running to God. So please hear what I'm about to say, because I think this is really important. Every time you flee a temptation, you flee from it to God. That's the key. It's not just about running away. That's part A. 
But part B is that God is waiting for you on the other side. He's providing the way of escape, and he is the way. Amen? He says, you come to me when you're tempted. I am able to come to the aid of those who are tempted, Hebrews 2.18. I can sympathize with your weaknesses. I will give you stabilizing grace, Hebrews 4.14-16. I'm your great high priest. I ever live to intercede for you. Call upon me. And I will rescue you. I will give you strength to endure. Flee from idolatry. That's verse 14. So you can see how the connection is made. We take the way of escape that we may be able to endure it. That's verse 13. We looked at that in some depth last time. And then in light of verse 13, therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. Connect the two verses. You flee from something, a false god, and you flee to God. Now, there's an Old Testament and New Testament illustration I'd like to just put before you. We won't turn there because I think it's familiar. I want to give you Joseph and Jesus. Now, in the Old Testament, we know what happened to Joseph. His brothers sold him into slavery. They were jealous of him. All of that unfolded. And Joseph ends up in Egypt. And he's in the house of Potiphar. And Potiphar's wife begins to have Google eyes for Joseph. The Bible actually describes Joseph as a young, good-looking guy, and we would imagine that Potiphar's wife was beautiful. If you were in Joseph's sandals at this time, you've been sold into slavery. You've ended up as a slave in Egypt. You had this favored status with your family and your father, and now you're in Egypt serving this Egyptian uh, master. And his wife begins to say to you, and this is how she put it, Sleep with me. Come to bed with me. Hubby's away. Come to bed. Sleep with me. Now think of Joseph. He would have every reason with all that life had thrown his way to just say, okay, I'm lonely. I, I don't understand what God is doing. He could make every excuse in the book to give in to Potiphar's wife and say, why not? Why not have a fling with this woman? It doesn't really matter in Egypt. When in Egypt, do what the Egyptians do. Walk like an Egyptian. Yeah. Whatever. Right? Whatever happens in Egypt stays in Egypt. So you could buy into all the worldly nonsense. Joseph could have justified it. And every day she was dangling the carrot. Sleep with me. Sleep with me. And something else was at stake. He was actually a servant in that household. So really, he was supposed to obey her. She probably always got her way could imagine. And he kept saying, no, no, no. Finally, he has to flee, literally flee idolatry, flee this woman who represents the world. And when he flees, she blames him of rape, right? Falsely accuses him, and Joseph ends up where? In a prison. Now, if you're Joseph, you got to be thinking, come on. Come on, Lord, I did the right thing, and I'm in jail. What's going on here? But the jail, remember, he, there's a series of dreams with the, uh, a couple of servants of the Pharaoh, and he interprets them, and the prison becomes the vehicle by which Joseph is raised up in Egypt. See, sometimes, we have to be honest, sometimes we might think this, maybe we don't say it. Does it really matter if I give in to temptation? Does it really matter if I look at pornography? Does it really matter if I do this or that, whatever that thing may be. Some of you may actually be there this morning. Does it matter? Okay, so I give in to something. I'm, I'm forgiven, right? I'm a Christian. 
But it does matter. Think of, I want you to think of the, the three Hebrew youths in the book of Daniel. When they refused to bow down to Nebuchadnezzar's 90-foot colossal statue. They said, we're not going to bow down. Now, they were thrown into the fiery furnace. Azariah, Mishael, and Hananiah. That's their Hebrew names, right? But what happened? A fourth one entered into the fire with them. And VeggieTale fans, are you ready? And he was real shiny. Come on now. All right. So, now, if they would have bowed along with the flood of humanity, would God have forgiven them? Probably. But what would they have lost in Babylon? They would have lost their witness. They would have lost, this to me is the most important thing, the grace of God showing up in the midst of the fire. See, sometimes what we sacrifice is the miraculous strengthening grace of God when we don't give in to temptation. When we say, I'm going to go through the fire of testing rather than giving in. And what we miss often is miracles. What we miss is the miraculous intervening grace and power of God because we just wave the white flag and we give in. And yes, God is gracious to us, but then we miss his power in the midst of the fire. And then we also miss the fact that when we don't give in, we get strengthened for the next time that we are tempted. And we know we can make it. We know we can take the way of escape. And then I want to take you to the New Testament in Jesus. He's in the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus' greatest temptation, in my view, was recoiling away from the reality of the cross and saying, no, I'm not going to do it. He was 100% human and 100% God. And he goes into the garden, and remember, he falls on his face. The disciples are sleeping. He's, like, really all alone. He always has his father, but everybody around him has basically fallen away, and then they will fall away. Father, if it's possible, let this cup Pass from me. Luke's account says that at that moment when he was praying, God dispatched an angel from heaven who strengthened him. And Jesus prayed it three times. Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Imagine if Joseph would have given in in Egypt. Imagine if Jesus would have given in at the garden. What would be the ramifications of that? Huh. You wouldn't be here. If Jesus said, no, I'm not going the way of the cross. I'm not going to do it. You're not a Christian. You're not saved. You're dead. And Joseph because he took a stand, he ended up in the prison, it's true, but then God used interpretation, and he ends up from the prison to the palace. And sometimes we don't want to take the, the, we want the shortcut instead of going the long way. Sometimes the long way is harder, amen? It's harder to fight my flesh. It's harder to resist the devil, and he will, what? Flee from you. That's, that's a struggle, but the reality is that God says, this is what I want you to do. I want you to flee from idolatry. And I want you to think about the examples that came before this. If you were with us, we looked at Israel, specifically Israel in the wilderness. And Israel fell to a number of different sins. In fact, they're cataloged here. Just quickly, back to verse 6 of chapter 10. Now, these things happen as examples for us so that we would not crave evil things as they also crave. 10-7. 
Do not be what? Idolaters, as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and stood up to play. Play is a sexual euphemism. Don't act immorally. Let us not act immorally. As some of them did, 23,000 fell in one day. Nor let us try the Lord, as some of them did, and were destroyed by the serpents, 10. Nor grumble, as some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happen at, to them as an example, and they were written for our instruction, upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands, this is written to the church, brothers and sisters, take heed that he does not fall. Israel fell with the incredible Shekinah presence of God, the glory cloud there with them, the angel of the Lord there with them, watching miracle after miracle having the manna provided for them, and still, even though every day they had a miracle of the manna, they still fell. And that means that we can fall too. So we have to walk wisely. We have to, would you see in verse 14, Paul addresses the church as the dearly loved of God. You're my beloved. J. Vernon McGee, I think, made that fa famous in modern times. May God richly bless you, my beloved. But he stole that from Paul. And Paul took it from Jesus because Jesus loves his people. And so when Paul says, he gives the warning, it's in love. Would you notice? He says, my beloved. This is a loving thing to say. Flee, shun, run away from idolatry. This is the commentator Stephen Um, and he says this better than I could ever say it. So I want you to hear this. He says, idolatry happens beneath the level of action. It happens on the level of appetite and desire. Idolatry shows up in the subtle twist of ordinary desires and activities, eating, drinking, playing, marrying, and having sex. These activities and desires are often not ends in and of themselves, but are means to another end, personal fulfillment, comfort, security, power, control, etc. Whenever we take a created thing and put it to use in such a way as to meet a need or fulfill a desire that only the creator can ultimately fulfill, we're committing idolatry. When we use food or substances or sex to fulfill or numb our deep desires, we're engaging in idolatry. Idolatry spoils life because we aren't able to enjoy things for what they actually are. Idolatry is in the air that we breathe. And it's rarely explicit. Most people don't know it's happening. They're not saying, I want this instead of Christ. They're saying, I want Christ plus this. To get at the idols of one's heart, one has to step back and consider the way one, one's desires shape his or her life. What drives us to work or not to work the way we do? What causes us to, to eat and drink or not to eat and drink the way we do? What desires lie behind the way we relate or don't relate to our spouse? What do we daydream about, fantasize about, long for? Do we often say, if only I had this? Or, if only I were like this? What is our desire pointing at? What is our affection pulling us toward? What is our end goal? Answering these questions will help one to discover some of the layers of idolatry in one's own heart. Tragically, idolatry inevitably leads to living a double life. The Corinthians' deepest desire was to find a way to serve Christ and still remain acceptable in the public square. They wanted the benefits of the new creational order 
while still participating in the old creational order. They did not want to stand out. They didn't want their faith in Christ to threaten their ordinary lives. They didn't want to participate in the shaping liturgy of the church while maintaining the shape of the liturgy of the surrounding culture. Excuse me. They wanted to participate in the liturgy of the church while maintaining the shape of the liturgy of the surrounding culture. As a result, they ended up trapped between two different versions of themselves. They were leading double lives. Idolatry isn't a choice between two gods. It is the attempt to serve many gods at the same time. Idolatry is syncretism. Or put another way, idolatry is adultery. I remember some years ago I was hearing a testimony from a man who was sharing at a pastor's conference. He was not a pastor. But he said, imagine that your wedding day comes and you went to the altar and the pastor began to walk you and your soon-to-be spouse through the vows. And imagine, he said, uh, you are to love and cherish and uh, you're to honor one another. And he started going through the traditional vows. And then you chimed in, well, could I only do that four days a week? Could I, could I be exclusive to this person uh, three and a half days a week, four days a week, when I feel like it? How about when somebody else comes along that I find more attractive? How about when that person's not in a good mood and I don't like them anymore? Uh, can I qualify my vows? No, the truth is that you went to the altar and you said, I will love you. In good days and bad days. I will love you through thick and thin. I will love you no matter which way the winds blow. I will love you when you're sick. I will love you when you have nothing to give to me. And you and I are in a new covenant relationship with the Lord. And he loves us and he wants us to love him. Imagine you wake up every morning and let's say that you had uh, a smorgasbord of gods. And one day you said, you know, today I think I'll follow Buddha. And then you woke up on Tuesday and you said, you know, today I think I'm going to follow Zoroaster. And then you wake up the next day and you say, you see how ridiculous that is, right? You want to wake up every day and say, Lord, I belong to you. I am yours. And thank you that you are mine. I'm in a covenant with you. I want to love you through thick and thin. I don't want to just see the first dangling carrot from the enemy and go over there and and justify it. I want to be exclusive to you and you to me. That's what Paul is saying. I want you to turn to the book of Acts. Paul is going through Athens, Greece, Acts 17. Just a little bit back in your Bible, Acts 17. And Paul, you know, he was Jewish, so obviously he was monotheistic, but he was persecuting the church, and he's ended up in all these pagan cities. Not sure he ever would have been there had he not become a Christian. And Here's one example, Acts 17, 16. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was being provoked within him as he was observing the city full of idols. The language there is that the city was in a forest of idols. They've done some research on ancient Athens, and they said the Agora, the street that leads into the main marketplace, was lined with 3,000 different altars. 3,000 different altars to different gods and goddesses. And one 
to an unknown God just in case they missed one. Right? Everywhere you look, there's this God and this goddess and that God. And this was in the main marketplace of Athens. And Paul goes up to Mars Hill and he says, what you worship in ignorance, and he starts with the unknown God, I'm going to explain to you. And then he begins to preach to them about the true God and how he doesn't dwell in temples with man-made hands. And then finally Paul says to them, hey, it's time that you guys got it together. Being then 29, 17 of uh, Acts, verse 29, being then the children of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and thought of man. That's really what an idol is. An idol is formed by man. It's man's idea exploited by the demonic, but it's really constructed by man. It's an image, end of 29, formed by the art and the thought of man. Therefore, having looked the times, overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should what? Repent. Because he has fixed a day when he will judge the world in righteousness. And Paul's context is idolatry through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. Paul's cry to the Athenians is to repent from their idolatry and to trust in the one true and living God. And some people look at world missions and they look at the Christian church and they say, why do you bother people who have these other gods? They're sincere. Yeah, but they're sincerely wrong. Because what happens is if they trust in a false god, that false god is impotent to save them. That false god could be pragmatic. It could work for them for a season of life. But in the end, can that god save can that God deliver on the day of wrath? That's what you want to know, don't you? Pragmatism is one thing. But I want to know that my worldview will actually survive when I die. As Chuck Swindoll put it, it's not whether you can live with your worldview, it's whether you can die with it. Because you're going to die. And if there is a heaven and a hell, if there's a heaven to gain and a hell to shun, then you better make sure you have the right God. And there are people all over the world, of course, worshiping a whole panoply of different deities. But that's not the issue. The issue is whether you got the right one, whether you got the one that can actually save you. Amen? That's what Paul is saying in Athens, and that's what Paul is saying in 1 Corinthians. And once you have him, back to 1 Corinthians why would you ever go back? Once you have the true and living God, 1 Corinthians 10, why would you turn back to dead idols? See, idols are a heart issue. And they can be subtle and tricky. For Israel, they struggled with the, the Baals and the gods of Egypt and so forth, the gods of the surrounding nations. Ahab and Jezebel are a good example First Kings 16, 31 through 33, it came about as though it had been a trivial thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, that he married Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbal. That means Baal is alive, by the way. King of the Sidonians, and went to serve Baal and worshiped him. And so he erected an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he built in Samaria. And Ahab also made it the Asherah. 
Thus Ahab did more to provoke the Lord God of Israel than all the kings of Israel who were before him. 1 Kings 16, 31 through 33. Later on, it came about when Ahab saw Elijah. Elijah means the Lord is God. And of course, the language is that uh, Jezebel's dad's mean, name means uh, Baal's alive. And Elijah comes to him and it means the Lord is God. There's always these underpinnings in scripture that are beautiful to look at. Ahab said to him, to Elijah, is this you, you troubler of Israel? And he said, I've not troubled Israel, but you and your father's house have because you have forsaken the commandments of the Lord. By the way, the top one, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. You shall have no other gods before me. Don't make an idol, commandment two. And you have followed the Baals. Now then send and gather to me all Israel on Mount Carmel together with the 450 prophets of Baal, 400 prophets of Asherah, who eat at Jezebel's table. Let's have a little contest. And then Elijah says to the people of God, listen to this. This is 1 Kings 18, 21. He came near to the people and he said, how long will you hesitate between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, follow him. But the people did not answer a word. Now you know how the contest went for the prophets of Baal, right? God answered by fire. The prophets of Baal were on Mount Carmel, jumping up and down, cutting themselves. Oh, Baal, 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 I'm bleeding, Baal, I'm bleeding here for you. Show up, please. And Elijah's over in the corner going, maybe your God's on vacation. Maybe he's reading the newspaper. And literally, the Hebrew could allow for this. Maybe he's on the toilet. Sarcasm is biblical, apparently, right? Hey, I'm just giving you the Bible. All right, so, bail, bail, bail us out of this one. <laughs> Come on. Well, after they did that for quite a while, you know what happened, right? Elijah called out to God, and God did a miracle. And the prophets of Baal were no more. But Ahab and Jezebel weren't happy with Elijah, and we know, I think you know the rest of the story. It was hard. And so, Pastor Michael has done one verse Back to 1 Corinthians 10. <laughs> Verse 15 in the New Living Translation. You are reasonable people, 15 of chapter 10. Decide for yourselves if what I'm saying is true. Some people see this as irony, a touch of irony. Maybe Paul is being ironic and giving it to the people. Others see that this is just a, a blank. Take it at, at, at the uh, surface level. I speak to as to wise men, you judge what I say. I think you guys can figure it out, is what Paul is saying. Is not the cup of blessing which we bless, the word bless means to praise, it's eulogia in Greek. We do eulogies at funerals, and that means to speak well of somebody. So that's the word for blessing. Is the cup of blessing which we bless a sharing is not the cup of blessing which we bless a sharing koinonia in the blood of Christ? Is not the bread which we break a sharing koinonia is the Greek word in the body of Christ? Now Paul's going to swing from the argument about idolatry to using the example of the Lord's Supper to make his argument. Scholars would say don't use this section per se as an in-depth teaching on communion. It's more illustrative Paul's using the Lord's Supper to make his point about 
you can't live in both worlds. You can't, you can't be serving God and idols. And he goes to the communion table, and as the Lord would have it, today is what? Communion Sunday for us. And so I, I just love how the Holy Spirit works. So he says, when we take the cup and we take the matzah or the bread, we bless it. It's the cup of blessing which we bless. Now, the blessings go both ways, right? We can bless the cup, we can bless the bread in, in the, those times, and if you look at like uh, examples of the uh, Seder meal, they would say a blessing to God who supplies the fruit of the vine. Blessed are you, uh, Lord our God, King of the universe, who creates the fruit of the vine. Blessed are you, Lord our God, King of the universe, who brings forth bread from the earth. So they would say a blessing. And the blessing, of course, goes both ways. So when we take the elements of the Lord's Supper, we're communing with our God. Now, we have fellowship with the Lord Jesus Christ outside of the communion time, of course. But when we come to the Lord's table, and this is what this is how Paul's tying it together, because in ancient times, when you went to a temple to a false god, there were restaurants connected to the temple. 